We've been beginning the last couple of weeks uh, this book of Galatians, and uh, we've heard, heard these first couple of chapters. Uh, Paul sort of straight up on the defence, uh, the, the message that he brought that established these churches. This message of life in Jesus is starting to be challenged, and so we saw a couple of weeks ago and reminded ourselves that the gospel, that the message that Paul brought, was an announcement, a declaration of a victory. That because Jesus has risen from death to life, everything's different. And we heard last week Paul affirming that this good news is the work from God. He shared how it had changed his life, and the expectation is that it changes other people's lives. But he wanted to emphasise that it also unites. It unites God's people. But what really stands out about the book of Galatians compared to a lot of other Paul's writing is the tone. There's a sense of seriousness and urgency that is capturing Paul's voice. He says that he is astonished that some of the accusations that have been coming against his teaching have been responded to. That people are taking this challenge to what he previously brought them and that they're changing the way that they're responding to what God has done. And so with Paul's message being challenged, he feels the need to come and defend the ministry that he'd previously done. And so the question arises, what is the appropriate response to this good declaration that there is a risen one? The good news is that there is hope of life beyond death, that God's saving king has arrived. What is an appropriate response to that is really at the heart of what Paul is saying throughout this letter. And so some of the things that were being questioned is whether or not there was room for personal preference in the way that people responded. Are there particular non-negotiables? Is there sort of a uniformity in response for those who receive this message as true and good for them? The gospel Paul has articulated is God's gift, God's grace. It's the message that God has given himself for the task of rescue, rescuing people from their sins, delivering people from the evilness of our present age. The gospel, as Paul mentions it, is news of what is done. And it's news that demands a response. And so to receive this news as something that is good requires a personal ownership. It's an acceptance that that this news of a risen one is something that's going to change your life. You're going to respond in a personal way. And what we're going to hear Paul argue in our passage today is to receive the full benefits of responding well to this magnificent news is to respond to this news by faith. What we see in our passage today throughout Galatians and in fact in the whole Bible is that we as humans who are gripped by sin and in this world that is wasting away, we are freed from all of that by faith. Trusting in what God has done. Believing with a personal response. Faith and belief is what Paul is going to argue is the way that you live in line with this great news of what God has done. Now, for most of us sitting here, if we've been in church for a while, this news doesn't seem particularly new or radical. 
Most of us, even who know anything about Christianity, would know that faith is pretty central to the whole package. But being familiar with a word isn't enough. Living by faith actually isn't a very simple thing. So to help us get some clarity, I've got two illustrations that might help us. One of what faith isn't, and one that hopefully, hopefully is helpful in thinking what faith is. Uh, the first one here from a video game, Mario Kart. Who's played Mario Kart? Okay, it's a, it's a racing game, but it's comical, it's fun. And what's that golden star? Who's the expert? Jude, what do you reckon? What's, what's that golden star? What does that do if, if your car gets that? Rainbow and invincible. It means that you have faster speed. Anything that gets in your way, it gets bumped and you can bump other people off. And I think that this is actually something of a distorted view that we can take of faith. That, yeah, yeah, faith in Jesus is important, so we need to find it, get it, and once we've got it, it'll just protect us against everything. And so we might hear that we, I prayed a prayer once. I responded to an invitation to trust in Jesus. It can be this sort of moment or this decision to follow Jesus. And perhaps you were sort of given the question, if you die tonight, why should God let you into his heaven? Now, sure, we can hear this message of Jesus and respond and, and say, Jesus is the one that I have faith in. We can treat Jesus, though, like a rainbow invincibility star or a get-out-of-jail-free card or a ticket to heaven. And I think the danger in distorting faith this way is that we see faith as simply something that we just need to obtain at some point in our life. And as long as we've got it, we've done well and we'll be fine. And whilst it's true in many aspects, I think it actually strips faith of the fullness of what it actually is. It reduces our understanding of how God sees faith working in our life. And we can become dangerously confused about what it actually means to live by faith. So that's our first example. Mario Kart, a game that everyone loves, but... It's a, it's a warning about a bad perception of faith. The second illustration is something that no one really likes, braces, but it's the good example, I think, of what faith is. Anyone here got braces on at the moment? Anyone had braces? I had braces. Anyone paid for braces? See, you see, no one likes braces, <laughs> whether you've got to wear them or whether you've got to pay for them. No one likes it. But braces are so helpful, aren't they? To correct, guide and hold your teeth, to actually align your teeth and allow them to grow as they were designed and intended to be. And in our passage today, Paul recounts a little previous confrontation that he had with Peter. And in verse 14, he said, talks about this time when he called Peter out for not acting in line with the gospel. It's literally Paul saying to Peter, you're not ortho-walking. You're not walking in line with what you know as being true. And so just like the orthodontist helps straighten up crooked teeth, Paul confronts Peter to try and straighten out his behaviour, that his behaviour would be more in line with the magnificent news of who God is and what he's done. 
And so I think faith is a little bit like braces. Faith is doing the work of straightening crooked aspects of life. Faith in who God is and what he's done is increasingly bringing us into line with God's will. And so three things I want us to see today is that faith is ongoing. It shapes all aspects of our being across our whole life. Faith is also distinctive. Like when you wear braces, people can notice. When you live by faith, you will be different. And thirdly, faith is transformative. It transforms our thoughts, our feelings and behaviour. As we live by faith, we continually become straightened and more aligned with God's will for his people. And so what it looks like in the details of life is where sort of Paul goes through the rest of the letter. We'll see that over the next few weeks. But here in this central passage, Paul outlines why faith is necessary, why faith is the only response to this magnificent work that God has done, and he exposes the danger of distorting faith or transferring our faith. You see, it's not just us who are in this church building on a Sunday morning who live by faith. The people up the road at the cafe are living by faith. The people who are out exercising are living by faith. The people who are having a sleep in are living by faith. Humans by nature place their faith in something or someone. The only difference is the object of the faith. And so the real contrast that Paul presents today is the contrast between having faith in our works and having faith in God and his work. Now, our works or our efforts are things that gain us approval. They please others. And often in life, the things that we do, we recall to justify ourselves. Uh, One thing that came to mind for me in the past week, thinking a little bit about this, was a vivid moment in our family. It was one of our kids. I'm not going to name them. And there was a day in the past that this kid was extraordinarily helpful. Can you help with this? Yep, no worries. We had people around that were like engaging in conversation. It was like a little bit of a proud parent moment for me. I'm just thinking, good job, Danny. You're a great parent. Just as I'm sort of patting myself on the back, delighting in my works of raising such a perfect child, we had a discussion later in the day and a request was brought to me. Dad, can I have this thing? Now, this thing was something that was currently banned. It was a consequence for previous misdemeanours. I said, no, you're not going to be able to have that. And the response was an outpouring. Perfect child gone. Angry child appeared. I did this. Didn't you see how I cleaned? Did you hear how I talked to that person? Now, it's memorable for me, not because it's distinct, but because it's so relatable. And the only difference between that situation and the rest of us is that as we get older, we just get a little bit cleverer in hiding the fact that we just love justifying ourselves based on the things that we do. That we do things so that an outcome that we so desire turns in our favour. Whether it's at work 
where we're the hard-working employee, willing to do whatever's necessary until we don't get promoted to that role that we just sort of expected, that we clearly have earned. And then we just quite quit. We just stay in our lane and we're not wanting to do the things that are asked of us. Or oh, whether it's you know the, the, being the friendly neighbour because you've got that DA submitted into council and then the neighbour sort of puts in a, a modification and you actually have to change what you're wanting to do and then so rather than a sort of sweet generosity as you're walking down the street, there's sort of this inner bitterness. Good efforts to sort of secure outcomes that we deeply desire. It's something that's pretty common for us all, isn't it? Faith in our efforts to try and justify ourselves. It's really just a part of living. But we know that in this world it doesn't really work out perfectly, does it? We look around and we see people getting really good outcomes, even though they've been deceptive or lazy. That often the outcome isn't decided on effort or merit, but it's on who you know or or what you're willing to give to the person making the decision. And conversely, we all know people who work faithfully and diligently and hard and then are confronted with a tragic outcome. Illness, misadventure, death. Faith in our efforts to try and obtain an outcome. It's so human. It's so normative. But it is so frustrating with the unjust rhythms of the world that we live in. And so Paul in this passage today is giving a contrast between how we're going to approach life. Are we going to place our faith in ourselves and our works? Or will our ultimate faith be in God and his work? You see, this is such a big issue for Paul because those who have been challenging the message that he's brought, they have different ideas about what faith looks like. Paul, in the back half of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 we saw last week, was sort of narrating some events from the past about how he'd begun his ministry, about how he'd interacted with the other apostles. It had all been quite positive. But from verse 11, there's sort of a turning point in the narrative having just outlined how he'd previously presented himself to Peter in private and that they'd recognised that they were aligned, that they were doing the same kind of ministry. Now, Paul recounts a situation where he stood against Peter. Their previous agreement in Jerusalem is now contrasted to, verse 11, with the opposition they experienced in Antioch. It's a situation where Paul publicly confronts Peter, opposing him to his face. This is serious stuff. And the reason that Paul says is that Peter stood condemned. Just think about this. This is Peter, the one reinstated by the risen Jesus himself. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. The one whose confession of Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus says, that confession, I'm going to build my church on that. Paul's now saying, you stand condemned for the way that you're behaving? This is legal language. This is a terrible verdict. This is grave consequences. Paul had already warned back in chapter 1 that even if he or an angel 
preach any other message than the genuine gospel, then he says, I and that angel and anyone should be accursed. It's literally to be destroyed or obliterated by God. It's a just punishment on a heinous heinous crime. But Paul now recounts the time when he rebukes Peter for his actions. And so in verse 12, he says, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. You see, what's happened is that Peter has changed. He's changed his behaviour. He's now acting differently amongst some people than he is towards others in the church. And the catalyst for that change that Paul identifies was a visit from some of the other apostles from Jerusalem. Ever since that visit, Peter, you've changed. You know, that sort of situation when someone goes away to a, to a conference and then they start coming back working, working different, acting differently, or they go away on a holiday and, and they come back different, and you're like, what happened there? Things have changed. The change for Peter is that now he's withdrawing and separating from certain members. He's withdrawing and separating over the Gentile Christians around the common meal. Now, their past discussion that Paul recounted in verses 1 to 10 seemed to be around the issue of Gentiles being circumcised. And that issue was resolved. But now the next topic is how do Jewish Christians, how are they supposed to relate over food with Gentile Christians? And the issue of this is because of the different food requirements as outlined in the Old Testament. And it's not about a moral cleanliness, I mean, a hygiene cleanliness. It's about a moral cleanliness. You see, God had set apart his people as his own. They were to be distinct always because of who God had called them to be. And so what was ingrained in the Jewish culture was eating food prepared appropriately, eating appropriate types of food. If you transgress that, you are classified as unclean, not appropriate to be set apart as God's people. Now, it seems that Paul and Peter had previously been on the same page, but now after this visit from James, things have changed. Peter has changed his behaviour, and Paul says that it's urgent to address it. And Paul says what he thinks the motive is for Peter is fear. Fear of James and the others. Fear that is causing Peter to fall in line with the other apostles. Perhaps he's scared. What might they do to me? Perhaps he just wants to please them. I don't want to get them offside. And Paul himself, back in chapter 1, verse 10, has already declared, I'm not a people pleaser. It's fine for you to disagree with me, but know that I'm not here to win your approval. I, verse 10, am a servant of God. And so he's confident that his understanding of what's an appropriate response is enough for him to confront Peter. And the danger is real, as Paul sees it. Look at verse 13. Peter's being influential. It describes there that others have joined Peter in this behaviour. Even Barnabas, one of the church's leaders, Paul's ministry partner, led astray from truth. You see, faith in Jesus has always been distinct from the culture around it. It's always been visibly different and confronting for different paradigms of living. 
Peter had previously been a strong advocate of faith in Jesus alone. Read some of his great sermons in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. He even had his own sort of personal encounter with Jesus around cleanliness and, and eating with Gentiles. But something's changed here for Peter, and Paul is calling him to account. Let's just try and get a picture of how this might take place. Back in the day, the followers of Jesus wouldn't met in big buildings like that. They didn't own any big buildings. It probably would have been in households. And so the household would have had a gathering to remember Jesus. Jews and Gentiles who now go, Jesus, risen from dead, he is the chosen king. Men and women, freed and slaves, masters and servants, coming together, probably hearing readings from the Old Testament. Oh, this is what Jesus fulfills. They're praying for one another and no doubt sharing in the Lord's Supper, which probably would have been a small meal in the midst of a larger and longer feast. This eating together was so central for their identity. Despite their differences, what they had in common was faith in Jesus. But now, Peter, who probably still would have turning up to these, would have done the Bible reading bit, but would have excused himself from the meal, the table fellowship. And it's not just him as an apostle, but the influence is so great that any who are of Jewish background are also thinking, oh, no, no, it's not appropriate for us to eat with you. Peter's actions are having a major impact on how the church expresses itself. And it sent a message that there were now differences amongst the people of God. There were levels, perhaps, of who God was most pleased with. And so Peter... In past situation that Paul's referring to from verse 11 to 14, and then the present accusations that Paul's rivals are bringing, they're really trying to hold up old boundary markers, which I think is then the catalyst from verse 15 to 21 of one of the strongest yet dense <laughs> descriptions from Paul about what the new boundary markers should be to be secure as the people of God. Paul, from verse 15 to 21, is articulating what really pleases God. And it's an affirmation of what the foundation and structure of the church actually is. And it's pretty simple. Paul says, what binds God's people together is faith in Jesus. That's the primary identity for all who are now in Christ. Entering and remaining in union with Jesus, in relationship with him, is only by faith. And this is the identity that affirms that God approves of you, that pleases him. It should be the very thing that shapes and is recognisable amongst your life and your community. And so now, with Paul in response to the issues from Peter in the past and now with his current rivals is dealing with followers who have a Jewish heritage. And the issue for them is, how should we live in these church gatherings? How should we deal around food? 
And now from verse 15 and 16, there's this very dense description of what their union in faith is about. It's hotly debated amongst very good biblical scholars about what exactly is going on here. But I just want you to remind you, this is about faith in Jesus. That's Paul's argument. That's what unites God's people. But there are three main aspects that come in this key verse, verse 16, being justified, faith, and the debate is whether it's in Jesus or of Jesus. It basically, you know, is it all about someone's faith in Jesus or is there actually some faith that Jesus demonstrated that also secures things? And then thirdly, the works of the law. We're not going to get too complicated here. We're going to go and focus on the three big terms because I think the repetition is to emphasise the point. So let's firstly think about what's going on with justification here in 2.16. To be justified is the very status that unites. It means that you're acceptable to God. And to be in right relationship to him is to have the right to be in his presence. And it's sort of this to be right in your thinking, in your attitude and your actions. It's a legal term and it's the opposite of standing condemned the very assessment that Paul had made of Peter back in verse 11. And I think Paul was making that assessment of Peter's actions by saying, actually, you're trying to please God by this changed behaviour. And so removing himself from meals is something that leaves him standing condemned rather than justified. It's the very works of the law that Paul goes on to assert cannot deliver the status of being justified before God. And so Paul begins by identifying himself as one of Jewish descent. He was and is a member of the nation that God has set apart. And so he, in verse 15, differentiates that there are Jews by birth and there are sinful Gentiles. He's describing the previous age where there was these categories. Both were unable to be declared right before God. The Jewish people had a sacrificial system built into their practice. It was a constant and permanent reminder of how all within that community failed to comply with the works of the law perfectly. The Jewish nation were in need of a saviour. And the Gentiles, by nature, were excluded. There was a pathway for those who wanted having been God-fearers, to be a part of the people of God. But even if they were going through the process and could be recognised, there was a need for them to have sacrifices offered on their behalf. So Paul is speaking to those who know this, who have placed their faith in Jesus rather than the works of the law. And so again, I think the triple mention of justification, works of the law and faith in Jesus reinforces and reminds them of the current issue No one's going to be justified by the things that they do. Whether it's this situation of eating separately, or whether it's the previous one he talked about, about whether uh, people need to be circumcised, or elsewhere we hear of in the New Testament about debates about what's appropriate and inappropriate on the Sabbath. None of these extra things or behaviours can provide the security to know that you're right with God. And none of them change or improve God's pleasure with his people. It's faith alone that has opened up the pathway for being right with God. This is where I think the braces is helping me get my head around it. 
The braces are put on. That's faith. It's aligning teeth to grow as they were intended to be. Faith, and Paul is going to talk at length in Galatians about the spirit. They're working together always. Change the trajectory of someone's future. And it's God who's the orthodontist to supply what's necessary to make someone pleasing to him. And the good news is no matter how busted, twisted or broken you are, God can change you and make you pleasing to him. Faith and the Spirit ensure that the future verdict is that you are acceptable before God. They provide the security that God will complete what he has started. Faith and Spirit are transformative. But just like getting the braces put on and then looking in the mirror the next day and thinking, is it fixed? No, no, no. Faith takes time. Change isn't immediate. Righteousness is secured, but it's yet to be fully realised because the declaration. And so Paul is adamant to ensure that the behaviour within the churches should reflect the centrality that faith has for the people of God. Faith in the person and work of Christ, both for his perfect life and his sacrificial death. That's what frees people from any kind of background, from whatever sin they're grappling with, whatever aspect of evil in this present age that is overwhelming them. It's faith in Jesus that realigns people so they can be presentable to God. This is a dense verse, but let's just take a moment to ask ourselves the question... What's central to our community? What really unites us in relationship? I think the encouragement from Paul here to emphasise faith in Jesus (laughs) establishes and should characterise the people of God. So, So like we were saying last week, sharing our story of how we've come to faith That is key. Sharing the ways with one another that we're seeking to live by faith in Jesus in the specific decisions that we're facing. Sharing stories of how we've actually and actively relied on God rather than relying on self. Encouraging one another to invest ourselves into God's care and trusting in his great promises and provision. And also remembering that faith is ongoing. To to prayerfully be expectant and to pursue what God might be wanting to do but is yet complete in our life. Paul is reminding them how Jesus has changed everything. It's now a new age that they live in. And if they start to modify their behaviour, try and rebuild previous divisions, try and add regulations from the past, then by function, they are saying that the work of Jesus isn't that significant. Rather than experiencing the freedom that Jesus' resurrection 
provides, they then stand condemned. To try and add extra requirements other than trusting in Jesus alone is what Paul says in verse 18, is to make ourselves condemned. If we think it's about our action, then we stand before God as a lawbreaker. To try and reintroduce any other kind of standard is to become out of line with the very good news that God, who began a good work in Jesus, will complete it. And verse 21, it functionally says that Jesus then pretty much died for nothing. You see, I had my braces on for about two years, and uh, the orthodontist is like, look, it's, it's achieved what we wanted. We've got more space in here. Everything's growing in the right direction. There is this front tooth that's, that's twisted. We could leave them on for a bit longer, and, and it would align. It's not going to make a major difference. It's just aesthetics. I'm like, I'm done with these things. She'll be right. But every day when I brush my teeth, I see that tooth. And I think that was a decision that I made. You see, faith is ongoing and faith will constantly be challenged. There'll be times when we think like me, she'll be right. My life's not that bad where we just subtly start trusting self rather than God. There might be those times when we come to faith where it's like putting the braces on for the first time and it's like a week of utter pain. The the crookedness and change that is going to be required is so obvious that you just think, I can't put up with this any longer. Paul is saying what's central to the people of God is that you are freed by faith. Faith alone. But as the saying goes, real faith is never alone, is it? Faith is seen in action. And it's this action that, like the braces, God is, when we live by faith in him, aligning us. Aligning our thinking. Aligning our relating. Aligning even even our feelings. And our doing. Because faith is ongoing. It's a lifelong reality. And sometimes faith is going to be painful because there's some major work that needs to be done. There's going to be some strong pressure that God's needs are going to apply to bring about a change in our behaviour or our thinking. Often that's the experience for those who come to faith As an adult, switching what you do for pleasure, where you go for escape, you know, undoing the way that you speak, how you handle your big emotions. These times, faith will be noticeable. But you're also probably aware of how necessary the change is. Perhaps the other danger when we're living by faith, knowing that it's ongoing, is those times when we sort of don't recognise it. You know, when you first put braces on, you're always looking at the mirror. Oh, I look so terrible. Oh, I'm spitting everywhere. Oh. But after a while, you don't even say that they're there. And so the, the danger, like me, when I thought, no, no, I don't, I don't need the braces anymore is that rather than faith being active, it can just slowly 
start to wander. Rather than trusting in the righteous life of Jesus, we trust in our own self-righteousness. We become judgmental of others. We sort of have this moral superiority and just sort of laugh at people who are so foolish. A life freed by faith is a distinctive life. And it's a life that resists this temptation to trust in our own works and rely again on the work of God, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus has died, so all previous orders of trying to operate and relate to God are released. And people from any background are now invited to be freed by faith. And Paul talks about it dying to self. It's being crucified with Jesus. He says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's the colouring in. And he's going to go on in Galatians about what this new life looks like. But for now, let's just finish by reflecting on the centrality of faith. Jesus didn't get sent so that we could just get off the hook. It's not just this rainbow invincibility star that's sort of like, oh, you need to go a little bit faster, you need a little bit of help, so here's Jesus. Trust him. Jesus isn't just some lucky gift that we sort of stumble across. Faith is ongoing. It's actual and active reliance upon God. It's when we fully invest ourselves into his care. Pondering and meditating on what God has done for us and is yet to do in us. And faith is transformative. God is wanting to change us to be the person who he's freed us to be. Someone who is acceptable to be in his presence. And so a life of faith will then be forever distinctive. Distinctive to a world that is wanting to place their faith in their own efforts to achieve their outcome, whatever it is. You see, the thing is we know that these outcomes that we might think are important are actually vulnerable and fleeting. For some, it's religious, that they do want to be right with God. They do want security beyond death. But placing your faith in attendance here or that you're Catholic or that you're Orthodox or that you're Islamic, it's ineffective. But it's not just for those who have an obvious religious faith. The outcome that we might be tempted towards is is gaining that Declaration of acceptance by that person who we value so much, whether it's our parents, our spouse, or our child. The challenge for faith in God rather than faith in our works can be academic, it can be professional, it can be social, it can be athletic, it can be physical, it can be financial. The temptation and pressure against faith in God alone is constant, ongoing, and can come from a whole range of places. But faith in God alone is the appropriate way to live in line 
to be aligned with this great news of a risen king. It's resisting the fact that there'll be social pressures to place your trust elsewhere. But it's just a great opportunity to participate in what God is doing. Aligning you for that day when you will see him face to face and you'll be declared justified. You will be right. And there'll be no need for braces. There'll be no need for faith. Faith is in what is unseen. Then we will see him clearly. And whether it's that sort of hard edge that we've carried our whole life or that deep insecurity that we can't shake or that perpetual judgmentalism, that'll be gone too. And God will have done a work for his glory and our good.